Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. My name is Jonathan Snowbell, and we are now studying the fourth section of Parashat Naso. Today we will be concluding studying the section on Sota, and we will begin the section on Nazir, and let us begin. Till now we have discussed the background to the Sota woman, the suspicion, grounded or not, as to whether she has had intercourse with another man, and the decision of the husband to take this issue to the Mishkan. The barley offering that is brought and the holy water placed in the earthenware vessel mixed with dust from the ground of the Mishkan and the objectification and degrading nature of the woman in question, specifically with regard to the uncovering or disheveling of her hair. Now the Kohen holds the bitter water and perhaps cursed water and we continue to unravel this drama in verse 19. In verse 19 and 20 we read what seems to be a conditional oath. And we pause here to translate. And the Kohen shall have her take an oath, and shall say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and you have, and if you have not gone astray into uncleanliness, being under the authority of your husband, be immune to this water of bitterness that brings a curse. If you, however, have gone astray, being under the authority of your husband, and if you have defiled yourself, and a man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, and you see that I have paused in an unusual place, right in the middle of the oath. The conditional oath is lacking. In verse 19, we read that the Kohen makes her take an oath. He begins with the side that she did not sleep with another man and did not become impure from, an, from a man other than her husband. Rashi comments, when dealing with Dinei Nefashot, capital punishment, we begin on the positive side, on the side of innocence. When did this become a capital case? We know from the Torah that the punishment for adultery is capital punishment but we are not talking about a court case with witnesses. How this became a capital case, we will shortly see. In any case, if she did not sleep with another man, then hinaki, you will be clean from the waters. The term tachat isheikh, we translated tachat to mean under, under the authority of the husband. However, tachat can also be translated instead of, or besides. If you did not go wayward and became impure from someone besides or instead of your husband. These two alternatives depend on how we understand the Tum'ah, as we mentioned yesterday. Is the Tum'ah a negative judgment? Then it means she became impure under the authority of her husband. Or is Tum'ah a natural result of intercourse? So she is going to become impure in any case due to intercourse, but was it with a man besides or instead of her husband? Now we move on to the second clause of the condition in verse 20. If she did become impure and had intercourse with another man, what happens then? The Torah seems not to complete the oath. To the extent that Rashi says the result of the other condition is implied in a, wor in a word play. If she was not disloyal, hinaki, be clean with the letter hey. Thus, it is implied that if she were disloyal, hinaki, with the letter chet, she shall choke, i.e. die. Why do I say that the Torah seems not to complete the condition? 
because instead of completing the end of the oath in the next verse, the Torah begins the next verse, verse 21, with the words, The Kohen makes the woman take an oath, but not just any oath, an oath with a curse. Why are these words necessary? This was already stated at the beginning of verse 19. Furthermore, the Torah adds more seemingly unnecessary words, also previously stated in verse 19. The Ramban gives a very technical answer that since the conditions and clauses are so long, it is necessary to restate the fact that is in an oath and, a point, and to point out that it is an oath with a curse. The Ibn Ezra claims that this repetition highlights that the oath is in God's name and it is an oath with a curse. Perhaps the Ibn Ezra means that there are actually two oaths. It seems on a literary level that the repetition is building up, highlighting, stressing the climax, this miraculous result that takes place if she was adulterous. Only after that repetition does the Torah continue with the end of the condition. If the wife slept with a man as stated in verse 20, then the result is described in verse 21, which we will now read. Then the Kohen shall have the woman swear with an oath of the curse, and the Kohen shall say to the woman, the Hashem make you a curse and an oath among your people by Hashem's making your thigh waste away and your abdomen swell. And this water that brings a curse shall go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell and your thighs waste away. And the woman shall say, and the woman shall say Amen, Amen. The curse is read out twice and in opposite order. The first time it says her calf and her stomach. And then the second time, the stomach and the calf. A. What is the meaning of this curse? B. Why in opposite order? Why twice? As to the meaning of the curse, I think I grew up on the assumption that the description of what happens to the woman is ultimately death. When looking for expressions of this, I found them a little bit between the lines and not always explicit. Rashi that we previously mentioned on the words Maim Hame Arurim states hamechasrim ota min haolam the water that the waters that take her out of this world implying death similarly we mentioned the ramban who mentioned her being shattered like the earthenware vessel and returning to dust both clear allusions allusions to death at greater length the sages in the sifri debate whether the sota dies immediately or at times might have had a stay of execution after three months or nine months or twelve months but the assumption is that she dies as a result of the test at one point or another. However, the verses themselves are not explicit, and not all the classic commentaries make this point clearly, if at all. The Chizkuni explicitly states differently, explaining that the punishment is one that will make her unfit for her husband, as it will permanently damage her womb. Whether this means that she is unfit to bear children or for sexual relationship is debatable. Different explanations are given as to the flipping of the order of the calf and the stomach. Likewise, some commentaries claim that the Yarech, translated as calf, actually refers to the womb, 
The mentioning of the punishment twice in the consecutive verses 21-22 is addressed in the Gemara and Masechet Sotah and quoted largely by Rashi. The two punishments imply that not only does the punishment apply to the adulterous woman, if indeed she is adulterous, but also to her partner in crime, the adulterous man. This notion, while understandable and even appealing, is fascinating, considering the adulterous man is not even present and not taking part at all in this process. We, we continue to verse 23. Then the Kohen shall write these curses on a scroll, and he shall wash them off into the water of bitterness. We finally read what makes the water so powerful. The oath, including God's name, is written on a piece of parchment and essentially erased into the water. On this powerful notion, Chazal state that the relationship between a husband and wife is so crucial that God is willing to have his name erased, an act that is otherwise severely prohibited, in order to intervene and potentially save a marriage. We continue to verse 24. Then he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings a curse, so that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness. The Kohen shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hands, and he shall wave the grain offering before Hashem and bring it to the altar. And the Kohen shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial offering and offer it up in smoke on the altar. And afterward, he shall make the woman drink the water. These psukim, these verses are confusing. Verse 24 begins by having the woman drink the water. And then in verses 25-26, the technical process of offering the grain offering is described, including the portion that the Kohen puts on the altar. And the Torah describes after the offering, the grain offering is brought, that the woman drinks the water. So does the woman drink the water before the grain offering is offered or afterwards? Rashi explains that verse 24 is not in chronological order, and verse 26 is. So what is verse 24 doing? It is merely completing the description of what is done with the water. The previous verses were describing what happens with the water. The ultimate result of the water is that it's drank by the woman. When, when is it drank? After the grain offering is brought. Then verse 25 begins describing everything as it happens. Now, what actually happens to the woman? et hamaim. vatim ol ma'al be'isha. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall come about, if she has defiled herself and has been unfaithful to her husband, that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness, and her abdomen will swell and her thigh will waste away, and the woman will become a curse among her people. We previously discussed the term Vatimol Ma'al from the beginning of our portion, 
And here it clearly implies that the act of sleeping together is the betrayal, as opposed to the Svorno we mentioned yesterday, who claimed that the initial betrayal was inappropriate conduct prior to intercourse. The term le'ala, Rashi explains that if one wants to curse others, they will say you should have the same end as this Sota woman. Verse 28. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she will then be free and conceive children. So if she did not betray, the Torah says v'nikta. She will become clean, which parallels the words in her oath, hinaki. You will be clean. What does Venizra'a Zara mean? She will conceive children. The Chizkuni explains this permits her to now sleep with her husband again, who she was until now prohibited to sleep with throughout this process. Throughout the process in which the husband is suspicious of his wife, of betraying him, he is not allowed to have relations with her. And now that she came out clean from the test, she is now permitted the Ibn Ezra explains simply, as we translated, that she will give birth to a child. Rashi says she will have improved childbirths, or improved children, like Rabbi Ishmael's opinion in the Gemara and Sotah, as opposed to Rabbi Akiva, who says that if she was barren, she will have children, which is similar, though not identical, to the Ibn Ezra. And now we come to the concluding verses of our section. Zot Torah takenaot, asher tiste isha tachat isha. This is the law of jealousy, when a wife, being under the authority of her husband, goes astray and defiles herself, or when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, he shall then make the woman stand before Hashem and the Kohen shall apply all this law to her. Once again, as opposed to the opening verses that imply that the woman was adulterous, these verses once again question whether the woman is innocent or not. Much has been written in modern scholarship as to whether the overall story that our section is telling is pointing a guilty finger at a wife, a guilty finger at a wife who has done something inappropriate within married life, even if not a full-blown affair, or perhaps the guilty finger is being pointed out an, at an overzealous, overjealous husband who has no justification for taking his wife through this ordeal, or a combination of the two, an overzealous husband who has created an acrimonious environment that has pushed his wife to act inappropriately. The more we demand concrete events to have occurred before the laws of SOTA are enacted, the easier it is to point an accusatory finger at the wife. The more we give the husband free license to initiate the SOTA process, the easier it is to point an accusatory finger at the husband for being overzealous. The Torah sends a variety of messages within our section, implying perhaps multiple possibilities that bring a married couple to this unfortunate stage. And the final pasuk of our section, the man will be free from guilt, but the woman shall bear her guilt. This verse is a puzzling verse. Why is it necessary to mention the husband's innocence? And why is it necessary to mention the woman bearing her sin? Obviously, if she is punished, whether with death or otherwise, she bears her sin. With regard to the husband's innocence, a variety of explanations exist. Innocence, even though he essentially caused her death, he shouldn't be concerned 
but rather he is innocent. Innocence, because he did not ignore the bad signs, but took action, as opposed to a husband who decided to ignore those signs. Or it refers to innocence for him to now be with his wife, now that her innocence was determined. So three different explanations are offered here. With regard to the wife bearing her sin, the Sforno is the lone commentary who suggests that this verse is true even in the event that she was determined as having not having an extramarital affair because her inappropriate actions did demand a reaction in any case, even if she did not actually sleep with another man. This ultimately then points a very guilty finger at the woman in question, even in the event that she was cleaned in the Sota test. But Chazal take this verse to a more holistic view of the marital relationship. When the man is clean of sin, only then will the woman bear her guilt. Or in other words, the Sota test only works if the man himself has been leading a lifestyle that is clean of sin. If the man has been partaking in sexual misconduct himself, then the Sota waters will not test his wife. And with this we conclude our section on Sota, and we now move to the sixth chapter and deal with Nazir. As mentioned at the beginning, we will begin Nazir today and we will conclude Nazir tomorrow. The classic comment of Chazal quoted by Rashi is that the suggested reaction to seeing an adulterous woman is to refrain from drinking wine. Drinking wine leads to misconduct and misbehavior. The Ibn Ezra, in a similar but slightly different vein, suggests, suggests that a Nazir woman who disregards her, her appearance by letting her hair grow wild is the opposite of a woman who is looking to be attractive for an adulterous relationship. We will attempt to understand the Nazir within the broader context of Sefer Bemidbar, the holiness of the camp around the Mishkan, and not only in the immediate context of the Isha Sota, the Sota woman. We'll begin in chapter 6, verse 1. Vaydaber Adonai el Moshe lemor, daber al Bnei Yisrael ve'amarta lehem, ish o isha ki afli lindor neder nazir lehazir ladonai. Again, Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to Hashem, we translated neder nazir, the vow of a Nazarite, and lahazir lahashem, to dedicate one to God. But without a doubt, we must understand the literal meaning of this root word, nazir. Rashi, Rasag, Rafsadja Gaon, Ibn Ezra, and others state that lehazir literally means to stay away from something. That being the case, lehazir lahashem, to God, means that the nazir stays away in honor of God. Sforno adds, in order that he should all be entirely to, to God, to deal in God's Torah, to go in God's way, and to be close to God. Rashi then continues to state that, that the Nazir stays away from wine. What is he staying away from? He's staying away from wine. Ibn Ezra and the Sforno expand this to staying away from pleasures in general. Staying away from pleasures is somewhat difficult to justify in the reading of our verses, which are less limited in their scope in what is prohibited than a broad stroke of pleasures, as we will see. So what is the main defining characteristic of the Nazir? The Torah points to three very distinct categories. Let us read the verses and see. Miyain v'shechar yazir, chometz yain v'chometz shechar lo yishteh, v'chomishrat anavim lo yishteh, v'anavim lachim v'veshim lo yochel. 
כל ימי נזרו, מכל אשר ייעשה מגפן היין, מחרצנין, ועזג לא יאכל. He shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. The first thing the Torah stresses is the prohibition of wine and grape products in general. Kol yemei neder nizro ta'ar lo ya'avor al rosho, ad melot hayamim asher yazir l'adonai kadosh yihye gadel pera se'ar rosho. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled, which he separated himself to Hashem. He shall let the locks of, his, of hair on his head grow long. The second thing, the second element the Torah mentions is the prohibition to cut one's hair, or more precisely, the obligation to let one's hair grow wild and unkempt. Within this context, the Torah says, Kadosh Yiyeh, he shall be holy. This is an important comment to keep in mind when we discuss what is the main characteristic, what is the main defining feature of the Nazir. Verse 6, Kol yemei haziro ladonai al nefesh met lo yavo, le'aviv, u'leimo, le'achiv, u'l'achoto, lo yitama lahem b'motam ki nezer elohav al rosho. All the days of his separation to Hashem, he shall not go near to a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean or un impure for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die, because his separation to Hashem is on his head. The third and final category is staying away from impurity stemming from death, tumat met. So what is the relationship between these categories? Are they three equally significant parts of the pie? Or is one or two the main defi defining element of Nazir with the remaining elements some sort of byproduct of the Nazarite status? I think that if we ask the average Jew what is the main and defining element of the Nazir, we are likely to get one of two answers. The prohibition to drink wine, and the demand to grow his or her hair. Why? The demand to grow hair, or the prohibition to cut hair, and the prohibition to drink wine are more visible. The hair is obvious and visible. Everyone sees that one is growing their hair. And the refusal of one to drink wine or have grapes in a society in which, in which the drinking of wine is an everyday occurrence is also very noticeable. Contact with a dead body, in contrast, is not an everyday occurrence. Therefore, avoiding it, too, seems less noticeable. That's why people will identify immediately the Nazir with one of those first two categories. Secondly, the stories in Tanakh about Nazarites seem to stress the hair and or the wine and not the contact with the dead. If anything, the most famous Nazir, Shimshon, Samson, was constantly in contact with dead bodies that he killed, leading Chazal to actually define a separate category called Nazir, Shimshon, in which contact with dead bodies is permitted, implying that the prohibition of coming in contact with the dead is the least significant of the three 
as one can be a Nazir without that prohibition. In contrast, Shimshon, we are told that he avoided go, going into a vineyard, and we know that Shimshon ultimately lost his strength when his hair was cut. Textually, as a third reason, the prohibition of wine and the prohibition of cutting one's hair is mentioned first in the verse before the prohibition to be in contact with the dead. When we read more of our section and learn more of the laws of Nazir, we will try to determine if the Torah gives us any leads on this question. But we will mention one more pasuk that we already mentioned before. In verse uh, 5, we read about the prohibition of uh, cutting one's hair, and there the Torah says, Kadoshiye, he will be holy seemingly to imply that the holiness stems from the hair. Finally, we will read one more verse today. All the days of his separation, he is holy to, to Hashem. Whatever the case may be, whatever the engine behind the Nazir, the end result is clear. The Nazir achieves a status of holiness. This leads us to a well-known comparison between the Nazir and the Kohen Gadol, which we will discuss in tomorrow's section.